You're listening to episode 168 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. J. Mark Beach, professor of ministerial and doctrinal studies, responds to the objection, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why aren't all people saved? This objection has been raised by skeptics, agnostics, and even some believers who struggle to reconcile the idea of a loving God with the reality of human suffering and eternal damnation. Here's Dr. Beach to help us understand this objection and provide some insights into this question. In this next episode in which we've been treating God's divine decree and the doctrine of predestination, we last time looked at this question of God's justice, and now we want to look at this question about God's love. In the previous episode, we noted that a philosopher some years back, a philosopher by the name of Thomas Talbot, charged the Reformed doctrine of predestination with uh, one count of blasphemy in the first degree, arguing that this doctrine attributes satanic qualities to God. We noted that classic Reformed writers, whether it's... uh, the older Augustinian model, or now Reformed writers like Calvin, and any number of classic Reformed theologians are aware of the sorts of objections. Another objection besides the justice, the distributive justice issue, which is better, a distributive grace issue, uh, besides that particular objection is the question of God's love and grace. So this objection is is raised that according to his love, God should want to be savingly gracious to all people. And then, given that God's omnipotent, given his divine power to achieve that very thing, why doesn't he then save, graciously save? Okay, it's by grace, but why doesn't he then graciously save all people, since he's able to save all people, since Christ's work of of atonement, of satisfaction, is sufficient to save all. Why not then just go ahead and save all? Thomas Talbot, the philosopher we mentioned in the previous episode as well, he asserts that the idea of divine rejection is actually diabolical. He goes there. Since God does not save all when he can save all, that's a diabolical trait. He himself doesn't believe God is diabolical because he's going to argue that, in fact, that's what God does. This is how Talbot reasons. If some people are non-elect and unsaved, then it follows that they are not objects of God's love. And to maintain that non-elect persons are objects of God's love is logically impossible. For then the concept of love is devoid of proper meaning, or at least it loses touch with human experience of love. For Talbot, love, in order to be love, must 
seek the ultimate good of its object. And to whatever degree love's yoked with power, and now God has omnipotence, omnipotent power, almighty power, when it's yoked with power to accomplish that good, it must do so. And so even if you've never heard of Talbot, you've many of us have heard objections of this sort, of this type. So if God's love with his power doesn't act to save everyone, then God isn't a good, loving God. As a matter of fact, since God is omnipotent and all-loving, therefore, according to Talbot, all must be saved. The negative side of this, if God is not all-loving, yet omnipotent, leads, according to him, to ludicrous conclusions. Namely, God fails to love people we're commanded to love, love your neighbors yourself, but he doesn't. Or his loving kindness becomes a non-essential property of his essence. There's another option. Well, God just isn't that loving. Or God becomes less loving, less kind, less merciful than many human beings, says Talbot. A further implication of this argument, he, are, he maintains, is that I cannot possibly love a God who doesn't love the persons I myself love. So, for example, if, if God doesn't love my daughter, then he doesn't love me, and if he doesn't love me, then how can I love him, since I am a fallen human being, depraved, and I can only love God if he first loves me. So Talbot's position can be summarized as follows. And I bid you to listen carefully. There's, there's six ideas here. And this kind of sums up how he's arguing. One, God is an omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving Father. So he's not an open theist, okay? Two, if God is all-loving, then he would want everyone to be saved. That's what he argues. Three, if God is omniscient and omnipotent, then he's able to save everyone. Four, if God wants everyone to be saved and is able to save everyone, then everyone will be saved. Five, now we arrive at a but, but everyone isn't saved, at least not according to the Reformed doctrine of predestination. Everyone isn't saved, which then leads to six. Therefore, since the first four of these propositions, he's omniscient, he's all-loving, he's all-powerful, he would want everyone saved, he's able to save everyone, and therefore, then what? Well, then everyone will be saved. But five the reform view, not everyone's saved, is inconsistent with the four above. So he's saying you have to make a choice. Either you have to be illogical and deny something about omniscience, omnipotence, and his all-loving kindness nature of God, the, the all-loving kindness nature of God, and that's your explanation for why all aren't saved. Or you have to follow Talbot and say, well, of course, this leads to the only right conclusion, namely all people will be saved. Well, how do you respond to Talbot? 
Well, open theists, in their own way, respond to Talbot in a way distinct from a reform model, of course. Clark Pennock, for example, argues that God's omnipotence is limited insofar as he's decided to create a world with free agents, with libertarian freedom. And this self-imposed limitation of God's power coalesces with a limitation upon his omniscience as well. So Pinnock believes that divine foreknowledge undermines genuine freedom. We may call God omnipotent insofar as he can do everything that can be done, and we may call him omniscient insofar as he knows everything which can be known, but as he argues, free actions are not entities which can be known ahead of time. They literally do not exist to be known. And so his response to Talbot would be bold. Augustinian theism, classic Christian theism, classic Calvinism, and even classic Arminianism must be discarded. Bruce uh, Rauschenbach is another author who responds in a similar vein. He maintains that the only way out of the Augustinian and Reformed as well love-justice dilemma is to rethink theism itself. So he's prepared to rethink the nature of God's omnipotence. And he says it's not inconsistent with God's omnipotence that he limit himself or his activity. For him, for Rauchenbach, God has limited his power to make room for freedom. If God has created us free to choose, to love, and serve him, then God can't cause us to do so. It's up to us to do so. It's up to us to accept or reject grace offered through his redemptive act in Christ. So his answer to Talbot would echo Pinnock's abandoned traditional theism. And the reason all persons aren't saved, despite God's love for everyone, is because God's power is under a self-imposed limitation in order to create genuinely free, libertarian, free human agents. Now, the question then shifts to why God chose to create a fallible world at all. And again, we arrive back to divine prerogative and sovereign good pleasure. No one likes those answers, and they can be weak answers sometimes. But when you've done your best to have an answer, to humbly submit that God is good and his good pleasure is a good pleasure. It has a good outcome. It has a good purpose. Um, is something to be affirmed. Now, Talbot's position can be attacked, of course, from a different front uh, without forfeiting traditional theism. That is, we can attack proposition number two that he posited and a refresher on that one is if God's all-loving, then he'll want everyone to be saved. Hmm. God is all-loving, but why would he want everyone to be saved who's forfeited? In fact, they're traitors, they're treacherous, they're, fit, they're haters of God. Their fists are up in his face. They spit upon him, they blaspheme him, they don't desire him or want him. And they have no rights to such love. So what about that? We know that 
God does act lovingly toward all creatures and that he doesn't give them their due as sinners in all respects and certainly not right away in affirming a kind of common grace. We see a undeserved favor, relative though it be, limited though it is. We see an undeserved, kindly uh, love distributed this way. Calvin made the point that God loves all creatures as creatures. There's not a human being that God doesn't have a type of love for as his creature under his providential care. But we're talking about salvific love now. Proposition 2 suggests that love must, that God must in his love, want and desire the salvation of everyone. But wouldn't it then follow, using this premise, that God's love would want the happiness of all persons? Again, rather than just limit the question to the issue of predestination, look at the wider fabric of life. If Proposition 2 were true, because God is so loving toward all people, he would want the equal distribution of happiness and giftedness and blessedness to all people, coupled with his omnipotent power, would then distribute equal gifts to all people, would bestow the same privileges to all persons, would secure the same enjoyments and blessings. Parents who love their children, and as parents, we, we do our best within our ability to provide the same privileges, the same emotional, physical, spiritual nurture to each of our children. This love is given to them as children, and children expect this nurture. And strong, healthy parents don't try to favor one child over another. They try to meet the particular needs of children but they try to be very equal, very equal in their distribution and care and love and support. Well, God's love following Talbot's premise would have to follow through on that. We know as parents, we're quite limited. We're quite powerless to even do that with our children. But given God's omnipotence following Talbot's premise, wouldn't that be how life would turn out? Why wait till glory and that all make it to heaven? Why wouldn't you want to apply Talbot's premise to life right now? Why don't we see a world in which God's loving kindness toward all people, all the same, turns out to distribute grace and gifts to everyone? Everyone gets the same happiness quotient now, the same blessedness now if God is loving and has to be loving the way Talbot talks about it. As parents, we do our best to love children, our children uh, faithfully and responsibility. Can't God do the same? This just serves to point out as a response to Talbot, if, if God doesn't love those whom I love, then, remember he argues, then he doesn't love me. And since I'm unloved by God, he doesn't love everyone I love, I can't love him. Surely this isn't sound reasoning. Perhaps the best way to meet this contention is by turning the argument on its head. So if we state Talbot's position positively, 
it would be something like this. God loves everyone. This is now Talbot speaking. God loves everyone. We can only love God if he loves us first. God loves me and all whom I love. Therefore, I love God. Well, if that follows, if that were true, then everyone would love God. God loves everyone. We can only love God if he loves us first. He loves me and all whom I love. Therefore, I love God. Who would it exclude? Why would anyone not love God? Talbot wishes to suggest that all people are saved since God loves all people. That's emerged from time to time in the history of the Christian church, and people latch on to some particular passages for support of that. And there are some universalistic-sounding passages, particularly in the New Testament, which we won't look at now. But if God's omnipotent, as Talbot concedes, and is able to make all people love him, why don't all people love him? Talbot gores himself on the horns of his own dilemma, it seems. He chastises Reformed Christianity, Calvinism, for its notion that God rejects persons he must love. But does God love the people he rejects? Well, I don't think anyone's argued that he salvifically loves the people he rejects. How can we suppose that such love, if it exists for the reprobate, is of the same nature as salvific or saving love? Talbot doesn't pursue this possibility. Calvin maintained, as I mentioned earlier, that although the reprobate are not hated by God as his creatures, they are hateful to him as persons devoid of his spirit and full of wickedness. Not only that, answering Talbot, Talbot cannot explain why God's love, which must seek the ultimate good for its objects, and yoked with God's power, why that power and love of God fails to achieve such ultimate good. Again, why wait for glory? Why not right now, right here with everyone? With Talbot's utilitarian view of love, wouldn't it follow that for the creatures God has created, the highest good is for them to love God back? Can you think of a higher good than that? You're a person who loves God's back. You love God back. You, you live a life in which you, you delight in God and you know his love for you. And yet that's not the world we live in at all. We live in a world in which many, most people, hate God, ignore God, turn their back on God, defy God. They do not return divine love, even common grace love. They give no acknowledgment of God. So why, you know, if Talbot's right, why hasn't God so loved all persons that all persons love him back? Talbot's view leads to absurdities, for with his argument, he must condemn, really, his own view of God. He's all-powerful, all-loving, and it's not getting better. We may commend him only in this sense, that he wants to ask hard, difficult questions and press our minds to face biblical materials in our own reasoning and the reasonableness of our talk about God well. But that's very different than that 
he has provided good answers. I would very much venture to say that if there's a blasphemy afoot here, it's not what the Reformed and what biblical writers have said about God relative to his good pleasure and his choosing fallen human beings or not choosing them, but to suggest that what's reflected there in Scripture is a form of blasphemy. Isn't that rather a form of blasphemy? So, again, here we do well to listen to G.C. Burkauer when he says, when we face questions about divine election, let's take a way of faith, a way of submissiveness, a way of humility, a way of, as Calvin says, learned ignorance. Let's press as well as we can to find answers. Let's also learn to stop speaking when God has stopped teaching. Seeking to understand the attributes of God can be a difficult task, but I hope that Dr. Beach in these two podcast episodes has given you a little bit of insight into these hard questions that you can now have the confidence to explore them further on your own. Next week, Reverend Andrew Compton is joined by Reverend Danny Patterson to discuss a very important topic in today's culture, abuse and the church. You won't want to miss their conversation. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts. And wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. Mid-America serves Christ and His Church by assisting in the formation and preparation of servants for the Kingdom of God, our primary purpose being that to train men for the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ in confessional, reformed, and Presbyterian churches. Learn more at midamerica.edu and see how we're training students by cultivating fieldwork in the local church and mission field through an affordable and residential academic experience. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.